Today we'll be discussing the life and career of the late Matthew Perry, and we'll be discussing addiction. This is Doctor vs. Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic from medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, we'll be discussing the life and career of the late Matthew Perry. Now, Perry died of drowning, but he did suffer from addiction for much of his professional and personal life. So in our second half, we'll be covering the medical aspects of addiction. So a bit more of a somber episode, uh, Ali, but I think we should get right into celebrating this. Yeah, I think it's a celebration of his life. He was a good dude who meant well, and there's a lot to learn from his addiction. I, I would recommend people watch on YouTube if you have a, a chance, watch his interview with Tom Power on Q. It's like, as you say, sobering, no pun intended, but also illuminating. It's like, you know, for people who have this idea that you know, well, this alcoholic, why can't they just stop drinking? He has some thoughts about that that are quite important, especially if you have that issue close to you or, you know, in your life, it's a very valuable episode. Yeah, I'll second that. And and if you look on a lot of the media that's come out after his death, you know, Entertainment Tonight, CNN, they quote this Tom Power interview very, very heavily. So it's, it's a great job by Tom Power, Ali's colleague at the CBC and Ali of course has been on that show. And I think one of the advantages of Q is it's long form interviews, right? Yeah, and I yeah. know now everybody does that in podcasts and on YouTube, you know, it's not uncommon to see a half hour, hour long interview with somebody on a podcast, yeah. but Q is the originators of that. And I think a lot of people assume, oh, it's so long, no one's gonna wanna listen to a half hour, 45 minute interview. No, if you're motivated to listen to somebody, you'll get that. And then you can see if you watch this Matthew Perry interview or listen to it, it's on YouTube, or you can listen to it on the CBC website or on their podcast stream. Shorter version on CBC. Yeah. That's the reason why I mentioned YouTube. You get yeah. about 15 minutes more of content, including a Q&A afterwards on, um, on the YouTube. But you can see how much more you can get when you actually spend that time with somebody, right? And, and again, Ali's done these interviews before. So, well, let's get into the uh, topic uh, right now, Ali. The biggest revelation to me this week, after I felt uh, genuinely a, a little bit sad about the news, was Matthew Perry's Canadian? I forgot yeah. about this. Did you remember that? Of course I do. You're did. well aware? Okay, yeah, because he has Ottawa connections. Yeah, so he grew up in Ottawa. So let's talk a bit about his early life, and then we'll talk about his career and kind of segue into some of these other issues of addiction that you talked about, Ali. So yeah, he was born in the US, in Massachusetts, but then he moved here. So his mother is a Canadian journalist. She was a press secretary for Pierre Trudeau, so who, the former prime minister of Canada. And so he lived in Ottawa and he grew up here. And so he, you know, went to Ashbury College, which is a well-known private school here. And so it's very interesting hearing about his stories of growing up here. And of course, there's a pretty famous story about how he allegedly beat up Justin Trudeau, who is the current prime minister. He doesn't remember, but his friends assure him, yeah, that's the guy we beat up. <laughs> Justin Trudeau even like you know, tweeted out like, you know, like this is many years ago, like 2017, years 2017. Ago. Yeah. Like he's like, let's have a rematch. You know, everybody wants to punch Chandler in the face. Like this is when he was a prime minister. And so, yeah. And to his credit, Matthew Perry was like, dude, 
You have an army. You win. I apologize. <laughs> Why are you tweeting me? Don't you have a country to run? And that's a bigger burn than I think Trudeau <laughs> yeah, exactly. will admit it was. So his father is Keith Morrison, so who might, people might know is a journalist, now I think works mainly in the U.S. So at about age 15 or so, he moved to the U.S. He was actually really involved in tennis and thought about, you know, maybe professional tennis for a while, but he moved to the U.S. Played and then 10 hours tennis. a day. Played That's 10 crazy. hours a day. Really had a, yeah, he doesn't even talk about tennis in no. his, it's completely obscured by acting and of course by everything, you know, all his personal issues. So he moved when he was around 15 to the U.S. and to try and make it as an actor. And his father was living there at the time. And I think he says that his one of his major influences was Michael J. Fox, right? Because Michael J. Fox did that as well. We remember, guys, in our Michael J. Fox episode, we talked about how Michael J. Fox was getting some popularity in Canada on some TV shows and then decided, you know, go all in and move to the States and try and make it big. And of course, he eventually did that, not just in TV shows like Family Ties, but movies like Back to the Future. So that was a big inspiration for him. Hmm. So a couple of interesting things. He met Hank Azaria. And Hank Azaria, I think most people probably know now. He does a lot of voices on The Simpsons, but he's been in, acted in many, many things over the years. So they became really good friends when they first moved there. Perry was 16 and Azaria was 21. And they filmed a pilot together and they just became friends for years. And we'll get back to maybe Hank Azaria in a little bit. Perry tells a whole story in his autobiography, as well as on this interview with Tom Power about how he ended up getting this role of Chandler. But essentially what he says is that him and his friends, Riley, spoke like Chandler all the time. Like this yeah. is how they spoke. From grade school. Yeah. Yeah. That was his Ottawa buddies. I thought you would do your imitation of Chandler. That is how he spoke. <laughs> <It's> very... <laughs> Could he speak in any other way? It's the two, I think, Murray brothers? These, yeah, these yeah, two brothers. I, I think they might have been twins. It feels like they're all in the same grade. And they were talking like that since a young age. So when he saw the role for Chandler come up, he was like, oh, this is just me. This is just everything. This is, I've never seen a character better suited to me. And I think he's aware of how incredibly lucky he was too. You know, the heavens really parted to allow this guy to get away. He, he doesn't have a very long drawn out story of suffering in Hollywood, relatively speaking. Yeah, he didn't have much of a resume before this. He, I guess, at pilot season was going on. He got picked up on this show called LAX 2194, which was set in the baggage handling department of the Los Angeles airport 200 years in the future. And that was it. That was the plot. And there's aliens and the baggage handling. So he was committed to that pilot. But then, and Ellie knows kind of more of this lingo, but it sounds like the pilot was not going to move forward. So Yeah, but when you're committed to something, you are committed to it. Yeah. You, you sort of sign on. And so no one wants to see him for, for another else. role. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, but then I guess that wasn't going to be picked up. And then he knew through a friend of his that actually the role of Chandler was still uncast. And they really couldn't find the right person. And they were, you know, time was going to come to start filming the pilot for friends and they didn't have somebody cast so he begged his agent like put me in i will get this role this is me i know how to play this character and then he did it he did the auditions for everybody involved including up to the nbc execs and then got it you know i was reading it used to be called six of one that was like one title then it was uh -oh. called these friends of mine i definitely remember these friends of mine because i you know as people know i was obsessed with entertainment and i still am so i would read about the new tv shows coming out every fall and what's this one this friends of mine that sounds kind of interesting speaking of your obsession you actually remember him from one of his 
smaller roles. It was a three-episode arc in... I guess Growing Pain. So again, I, I, I didn't that. know it was him when we were doing the research. I remembered this, these episodes. So there's an episode where Carol, who is, is the Carol daughter Siever. in, in yep. the Seaver family, she's dating this guy, Sandy. You know, I don't know if that many people will be called Sandy these days. Though Ali has a good buddy named Sandy, so I guess yeah, I have a couple him. actually. Yeah, he's kind of an older guy, and they're dating, and and he they go drinking, and she gets drunk for the first time, and then he decides to drive home, and he gets into an accident. You can kind of guess what happens. He does end up passing away from the accident. So it was trying to call the attention to drunk driving. It's like one of those very, you remember, very special episodes yeah. of these 80s sitcoms. So this was For a sure. special episode on drunk driving. She's already dating an older boy. That was yeah. a big deal in the 80s. Yeah. And he's a drinker, and then he dies as well. Yeah, that would have been a very uh, sad, I don't remember. And it's interesting because he actually gets into an accident, and he seems okay. He's in the hospital, hooked up to huge, but she has a conversation with him, and then he ends up dying from complications from it. So, oh, man, I can't believe you remember this. I'll link to it. You can rewatch the episodes. And this Funnier Die has like a whole bunch of little clips of these very special episodes. They basically make fun of them, but you get the gist of it. And then I kind of watch the serious scene where Kirk Cameron has to break the news that Matthew Perry's character does. Anyway, so I didn't realize it was him. He did, does well in it, and I love Growing Pains back in the day, so that was fun. But I'll, I'll link to that funnier Die clip so you guys can take a look at that. So I'm assuming you, Ali, first were exposed to Matthew Perry on Friends. Nobody exposed anybody to anybody, Asif, but I did see him first on Friends. I don't think I knew anybody in that lineup. Of the six of them, I don't think I'd heard of any of them. Well, you knew Courtney Cox. I knew her because she was in the Dancing in the Dark she video was in the Dancing by Springsteen. The and Matt LeBlanc. He was in that Heinz ketchup commercial. Go, see if I can find it and link to it as well. Remember Heinz ketchup? He like puts the bottle of Heinz ketchup on the roof. And Heinz ketchup is so thick. That's the best thing about Heinz ketchup. It's not runny. So then he's it's like Walk he, all he the way on down. the side. And he runs yeah. all the way down and he puts his hot dog and it drips on it. I'm positive that was Matt LeBlanc. In fact, I, I don't remember that commercial. So and I he was can't also even in a an Alanis video back in the day as well. So and then I so I remembered him. Lisa Kudrow was playing a waitress on Mad About You. Of course, and then she was cast on Friends. And of course, the irony was then they made that actual her real life twin sister. So Ursula became her sister on the show, right. who was the waitress on Mad About You. So right, right, they actually right, right, right. kind of wrote that into the show, which was hilarious. So in fact, the real unknowns in this were Jennifer Aniston and Matthew Perry, like yeah. Jennifer. And definitely never heard well, of. I think David Schwimmer, I had never heard of prior to. I actually forgot about David Schwimmer. Oh my god, like, he was the we guy. We covered He's everybody. David... We covered everybody on the show. Sorry about that. Woo, that was mean. I think it's because of my slight residual hatred for Ross. But anyway, that could be for a separate Friends episode. Let's let's stick. With Although, that. just to make it positive, you know, they famously made a million dollars per episode, and that was what was being offered to Ross. And he came to them, Matthew Perry speaks to him, he's like, I think we should all go together and negotiate. And Matthew Perry jokingly said, all right, idiot. Like, <laughs> I don't know why you don't want to just go on your own. Like, but that speaks to David Schwimmer's character that he was like, mm -hmm. I think we all add value to this show and we should all go together and negotiate this. Which is smart because there were some breakout people. I would say Jennifer Aniston and Matthew Perry maybe the breakout people. Mm. And it was smart. And they, they as you said, like that means they did 22 episodes a year, each of them, right? So yeah. 
a lot of money. And I think that was a great, and even with residuals, people were saying they probably make about 20 million a year from residuals from airing of friends. So they didn't do too bad for themselves, those no, friends, those friends of mine. So yeah, it was same with me. Like that's when I first saw Matthew Perry. And I do think he was a bit of a breakout character in the first season. Obviously I've seen every season and watched every episode of Friends. Obviously. I remember it, you know, really becoming a huge, it wasn't my favorite show at the time because it was on with Seinfeld and some of these other shows in the 90s, early 90s, but I really liked it. And I went back and rewatched, like, you know, on YouTube, you can find the best Chandler lines, the best Chandler, you know, sure. situation. I just want to give you an idea of what the show was like. I was in university. I was in McGill University and we were having the time of our life. We were 19, 20, 20, whatever, whatever year it was. One of our friends, Arsalan, I'll just name him, would sprint back home. He'd be like, oh my God, oh my God, Friends is starting. And he would leave his actual human friends to go watch a show called Friends. And he wasn't alone in that. And weirdly, he was actually very much like Chandler. So I think he felt seen. He was very much the sort of, you know, had that spastic behavior and these movements and constantly playing with his hair and like very sort of frantic dude at the time. And I know for a fact, he wasn't alone. People, it was like what was, was called must-see TV back then. People would drop all their plans to go see this show. So it was a, it was a huge deal. You missed it. You missed it, right? What are you going to do? Then yeah. not have something to talk about? Yeah, I went back and rewatched some of these and he is really funny. You can see why he jumped off the screen because there was nobody doing, his line delivery yeah. is so good. No, no one else I think could do a line delivery like he does. It is so... I don't know how to describe it, man. He's just so funny. He knows, he sees the joke. I mean, I'm talking to a comedian right here, but he sees the joke. He knows the best way to deliver the line, right? Like it's, it's as he said, it's like this character was written for him and in a weird way it was, right? It, it wasn't really, but, and his physical comedy too. I watch a couple clips of his physical comedy. Again, like this guy has it, right? Remember when yeah. he's trapped in the ATM, <laughs> whatever, vestibule, like yes. so much good stuff the guy, the yeah, guy yeah. did. Like, that is a masterclass in physical comedy. I do remember that episode. I definitely have a lot of respect for him, obviously, from Friends. And then he even says, you know, he got the movies afterwards. Remember, he dated Julia Roberts for a bit. He became this huge Oh, my God. I forgot star. about that. Yeah. And she was on an episode of Friends, and right? So then he got this, he did a bunch of movies. We could talk about some of them if you want. Actually, I think, you know, out of respect for this guy, he does say in this in this interview, you know, he's asked a Q&A at the end. Somebody says, what do you what do you want your life to mean or some such deep, deep question. And he said, I, I want to be known as, you know, I, I don't want people, the first thing they talk about when they hear my name to be friends. I want to be remembered as a guy who helped others, who, who served, you know? And, and so out of respect for him, I'd love to talk about some of the other stuff he did. Unfortunately, it wasn't all fantastic, but he did win, you know, he had Emmy nominations for Outstanding Lead Actor in Friends, but he also had two Emmy nominations for Outstanding Guest Actor in a Drama Series, 2003, 2004. That was as Joe Quincy in The West Wing. I remember this and I totally forgot it completely. He was also in a couple of episodes of Ali McBeal and he had a directorial debut and acted in an episode on a season four of Scrubs. Mm -hmm. which yeah, I, I remember that I've episode, seen all the yeah. Scrubs. How do I... What's happened to my brain? It's mush up here. One of the things that I was excited about, you know, even in the mid 2000s, I knew Aaron Sorkin and his work and Aaron mm. Sorkin developed 
Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. And mm -hmm. I was, I don't know, I was excited. Matthew mm -hmm. Perry was going to play a prominent role on it. And, you know, the it's like this writer-director duo who is brought in to help save a failing sketch show. That show came out at the exact same time as another very famous show about a sketch show, 30 Rock. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. as much as I wanted to watch Studio 30 Rock just got me. Oh, me too. I mean, Studio 60, I, again, I feel bad talking about this because- There must be some major bad blood between people. Like, those two shows should not have come out at the same time. No, and Studio 60 got all the press back in the day, and 30 Rock really didn't. But just 30 Rock was a better show. And the, the reason was because if you ever watch the skits that are in the show on Studio 60 and the Sunset Strip, right? So they have the regular show and the show they're making, which is an SNL type show. Those skits were not funny at all, right? Whereas when they did the skits on 30 Rock, 30 Rock was funny. And, you know, the characters on the show played by Tracy Morgan and Jane Krakowski, those were all like funny characters on the show that they were making as well. So it just didn't really make a lot of sense on Studio 60. I think they picked the wrong topic the wrong topic being an snl type show so that didn't last but then 30 rock did so i mean i guess you're bringing it up for uh <laughs> that was unfortunate i'm just i'm bringing it up to tell you how excited i was i, re I remember that saying like, oh that's amazing matthew perry's back it's not the same we're not going to be thinking of chandler anymore this is a different role altogether i also man i tried to remember these the, the movies he did fools rush in did very well with salma hayek yeah. and matthew yeah, saw that. lead role and if you read some interviews, uh, Salva Hayek has, you know, just put out some stuff, I think, on Instagram, very touching and basically saying, like, it's one of the best or her best screen partner ever, almost, was Matthew oh, Perry, and he feels yeah. the same way. I think they really, you know, liked each other a lot and had a very good working relationship. And then, of course, there's the whole nine yards, right? That is, like, his big hit movie and the whole 10 yards after that. Do you remember, I was looking up the whole nine yards. Do you remember that he played a dentist from Montreal originally? That's what he was. No, Ali, I'm sorry. I don't remember anything about that movie other than he's in it and yes. Bruce Willis is in it. Oh, you called it very good. Interesting. I called it very good. You just said that the whole nine yards was, that was a great movie. So I thought you also. Well, I know, but I remember enjoying it, but I, I don't think I saw the sequel, but you oh know, God, hey, Matt, <laughs> The whole 10 yards. Oh, but Matthew Perry said, you know, remember how you want to be like Michael J. Fox. At one point, Michael J. Fox had the number one TV show, Family Ties, and the number one movie, which was Back to the Future. And then guess what? Matthew Perry was able to do that as well. He had the number one show in Friends and the number one movie in America at that time was the whole nine yards. So I thought it was it. Fool's Rush In that like busted the box office, but this is the one. No, it was the whole nine yards. I mean, even then... In those years, Bruce Willis, Rosanna Arquette, Michael Clark Duncan, Natasha Henstridge, Amanda oh, yeah. Peet, Kevin Pollock. I mean, surrounded by just- Yeah, Amanda Peet. Yeah. I was trying to remember the actress who was in it. Yeah, Amanda Peet. So sorry for everyone who loves that movie and I don't remember it that well. But I do want to kind of transition a bit here, Ali, to some of his addiction issues and then we'll do a separate thing on addiction in general. Sure. Okay. You're in the driver's seat. You're allowed to do whatever oh, you want thank here. you. So the other thing he says in a lot of these interviews, and a lot of people are quoting this from the Tom Power interview, is he does not want to be remembered for friends. What he was hoping, and that's why he wrote his autobiography last year, he says, I don't want the friends to be the first thing that mentioned. I want the fact that someone can come up to me and say, I can't stop drinking. Can you help me? He says, yes, I can. I have been through this. I can help you. 
That's what he wants the rest of his life to be devoted for. And that's what he wants people to remember. And so I think it's important to just talk a bit about now about his addiction, because again, this is a bit of behind the scenes. Look, Ali was like, we got to talk about Matthew Perry for the podcast. Let's record an episode. And I said, yeah, that's good. So the medical thing, like maybe talk a bit about drowning because he drowned. And Ali's like, what are you talking about? Like, he battled addiction for basically, we'll hear about it in a second, his entire life. How could you not talk about this? And I was like, yeah, obviously. And, and that's behind fact, the scenes. That's the kind of conversations I have to have with Asif. He wanted yeah, to Yeah, and then he slapped me around. Virtually. So let's go back in time a bit. When he was growing up in Ottawa, he, at the age of 14, with his buddies, the Murray brothers, he got drunk for the first time. And he drank baby duck, which is a type of wine, I guess. Like a yeah, cheap well, uh, it's wine. cheap champagne, actually. Baby duck, I think, was 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 fizzy. Is it? I've had baby duck know. when we couldn't afford anything, you know, young people at parties. Yeah. I don't know about that. So, and then he just says, like, basically the feeling was like a euphoria the first time he got drunk. And he's like, this is kind of what he was waiting for his whole life, which is not good, you know, obviously, if that's, and that's how he started. And it's very funny, like, he says him and his friends, the Murray brothers, used to talk like Chandler all the time, right? Could this be any more annoying? And he's like, he got famous and super rich from it and they did it. He's like, but on the other hand, they did expose me to alcohol at age 14. So, you know, six of one, half dozen of the other. So it's very funny when he, he mentions this in his interviews. But I found out that he was on phenobarbital as a child because he cried a lot. So his parents went to see some old doctor and they're like, yeah, just give him this medicine. Tell us what phenobarbital is meant for and why that's such a not advisable thing. Yeah. So it is, we use it, I use it a lot as an anti-seizure medicine in babies, right? So if they're having lots of seizures, we'll put them on it. Using it for excessive crying, it's a barbiturate, you know, it's a controlled substance. You know, you can get a high on it, you can get addicted to it. So we have to use it under careful supervision. We don't use it for, you know, a very long period of time in babies. We would, would not use it for several years or anything like that. And just to use it for crying in a baby is crazy, you know? And, you know, he'd, so he'd sleep all the time because he was taking this and he attributes this to his sleep problems that he continues to have. Like, I, I'm not sure if that makes a lot of sense to me from a neurochemical point of view, but certainly it was wildly inappropriate for him to have been prescribed this as, as a child. And so, you know, he has this predisposition to addiction. So tell me about that. If somebody is given this type of barbiturate at, you know, he said from day 30 to day 60 of his life, he was on this. Does that inevitably or possibly set you up for a life of, you know, a disposition towards uh, addiction? I don't think so. I think it's more coincidental only because like I said, we put babies on for seizures and not those patients don't end up, you know, having addiction or addictive personality. So I don't think so. I think, you know, things are multifactorial, right? Like things, various things will influence you, your own genetic makeup, and then things that happen to you from an environmental point of view. Of course, his parents separated when he was very young. How did that impact on him, his decision to move to the US? And of course, he talks a bit about this in some of his interviews and in his book about how his mother was, I guess, quite attractive, and she was the press secretary for the Prime Minister of Canada, so she got a lot of attention. And sometimes he just wanted that attention, right? From her, not from the people giving the press secretary the attention. Just to Correct, yes. correct. But he says even now to this day, you know, he wants that attention. And the one person who's not paying attention 
to him in the room. He's like, I, I need to get their attention. You know what I mean? So there is, you know, again, I'm not trying to psychoanalyze him. And I think if you read his book, you'll get a lot of this kind of this internal dialogue about how he is. But nevertheless, I mean, you know, he basically talks about using substances since he was a teenager, right? All the time. And, you know, using this all the time. And of course it did end up interfering with friends, you know, his colleagues often saw that, but, you know, he was drinking every day by age 18 and then again, using pills. And I don't know, eventually he was at the point, I think he was taking 55 Vicodin a day. He had alcohol induced pancreatitis, so inflammation of your pancreas when he was 30. I mean, you know, there's a lot of issues going on and, you know, I guess I had friends, you know, they would comment, and we could tell, right? Because sometimes he'd be really skinny, sometimes he'd look like he gained weight between seasons, and he says he can tell what he was on. He's like, alcohol, opioids, cocaine, opioids, alcohol. Like, he can tell when he's watching himself and these old things, so he prefers to not watch his old TV shows and, and, and reruns of Friends. So they could smell alcohol at him, and eventually they were doing, I guess, a table read, and he couldn't get through that. So he was incoherent. So they staged an intervention, but you know, he's had to, it's been an ongoing struggle with him for, for many years. And then I don't know if you knew about this, Ali, he had some other complications. So he has had his colon burst from opioid use. So I'm not sure exactly about what, I mean, we don't have his medical records, but we know that opioids can affect your gastrointestinal system. And in that amount, especially. Yeah, exactly. In huge amounts, it can sometimes cause like your gut not to kind of move and move things along. So well, imagine sure those commercials that. that we've all heard about side effects may include, and then there's yeah. a dozen things. Yeah. He was, it was like he was on a mission to get. Yeah, to all have all the of side them. effects yeah. times 10, yeah. So that burst, he had to use a colostomy bag for nine months. He came into the hospital, he was comatose for at least two weeks, and he was so sick, he had to be hooked up to what's called an ECMO machine. Have you heard about this, Ali? No, I mean, just in the interview, but I've never heard of that before. Yeah, so it's extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. So basically, your heart and lungs are failing, so you're using the machine to function like this. So the function of the heart is to pump your blood, and your lungs is to oxygenate your blood. So you're bypassing the heart and lungs and using this machine to do it. And it is like... You know, we do it in kids when we have to, but it means you are extremely sick. Like you're probably going to die. It's like, as he describes it, it's like a Hail Mary, you know? And he says a very sobering statistic. Like when he was in the hospital, I guess five people the night he was admitted were hooked up to an ECMO machine and four people died. And he was the one who did it, right? So there's a lot of guilt, you know, why did sure. he survive and why, you know? And this is like- He said that he has to live- knowing that he put his parents through that as well. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, and so that was sobering, but then even, so you think, oh, that was it. That's what finally got him sober. But it wasn't, you know, a couple of years later, he was attending rehab in Switzerland and then he faked pain to get Oxycontin and was getting ketamine infusions. And then they kind of refused to do it anymore. So he took a private jet to LA to get more drugs and they refused. So he went back to Switzerland to try and get more stuff. He says in 2022, so by 2022, so by the time he wrote his book, he had spent $9 million on his addiction, 14 stomach surgeries, 15 stays in rehab, therapy twice a week for 30 years, and attended 6,000 AA meetings. 
So, yeah, you can see how, and I think, you know, it's actually kind of amazing that he was able to function on Friends relatively well, right? And his colleagues on the show still care about him and obviously, you know, still want the best for him because, you know, obviously this, I mean, it probably goes without saying, but just because you have addiction doesn't mean you're a bad person, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think he's definitely not. As, as an aside, just to finish up the Matthew Perry stuff before we go into his addiction issues, it sounds like he was doing better and he was sober at the time he wrote his book, did these media tours, like the Tom Power interview and some of these other interviews that we're talking about. So it is quite sad that this happened to him. We don't know. There will be a toxicology report because of his uh, death and the circumstances surrounding it. So we'll probably find out eventually. I mean, I'm not sure if that's necessarily here or there. So, I mean, obviously this addiction, like I said, it, it made sense now, of course, with Ali's logically sound argument to focus on this for this thing because it occupied so much of his life and he felt especially in his book and in the past year that he could actually help people. So why don't we segue into our second part, talk about addiction in general. Let's do it. My big takeaway from this interview that I watched was, and this is a very grim thing to say, but a part of me was like, how are you even alive today? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How have you survived all this? It's insane. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think his death may also come as not a shock to many, many people who knew him, right? They probably thought they were going to lose him many times over the years. Mm-hmm. Just sad how he went and what he had devoted his life to, but yeah. Mm-hmm. And as you said, it seems like things are on the right track. So. I do want to talk a bit about addiction. Again, caveat, like I barely prescribe these medicines that people get addicted to. I said we talked about phenobarbital, but I use it for a different indication. So this is all not what I do on a daily basis at all. So I'm kind of summarizing what's in the scientific literature. And we'll kind of focus on, you know, maybe some misperceptions or things that are a bit unclear and make treating patients with addiction difficult. And maybe how your general practitioner, family doctor, nurse practitioner might approach addiction as opposed to getting into the nitty gritty details of how you treat people. But a couple things I want to point out, there's a really good CNN article that just came out like this past week talking about Matthew Perry and interviewing some addiction specialists because, you know, obviously this raises a lot of questions in terms of what's going on. So they have some good quotes in this. They said, no one ever plans on becoming addicted, right? People can make a decision to use alcohol and drugs, and obviously people do that every single day. But no one says, I'm going to become addicted to these, right? That is not a conscious decision. And interestingly, I didn't really know this. They say the average is it can take eight years of trying to become sober before people reach their first year of being able to not consume that drug for a year. So it's eight years of kind of relapses and things like that. That's right. So I guess I didn't appreciate this, but the recovery and relapse is not failure. It's a part of the process because I always get so disappointed when I hear about oh, this actor, actress, person I know is relapsed and they're back to treatment. But that is it. And of course, just like everything in life, you're supposed to learn from your mistakes. What happened last time? What can I do differently now? Right? But you think that eight years is a long time, right? So you think I'll never be able to do this. But you have to think about how you can improve. And in fact, they say that the majority of people, like 60 to 75% will achieve remission over time. But it's 
years, bumps in the road, and now you can see what Matthew Perry was getting at, right? When he's like, I know how to do this. Like, I've done this. I can help people. Because he had to live through these, I mean, bumps in the road is a, uh, you know... (laughs) Bit of a Gross nice understatement, yeah. What, yeah, what what you've had to do, but so some of those things I think are really important to conceptualize when we're talking sure. about addiction. Societally, how common is substance abuse? Or well, we sh- maybe we should. What's the difference between substance abuse and substance dependence? Or or right. does yeah. medicine not draw a? Yeah, no, no, no. There is. Yeah, that's a really good point because you kind of hear both of those. So substance use or substance abuse is when you use a medicine, so a prescription medicine incorrectly, or an illicit substance, alcohol or, or whatever, you know, in a way that leads to negative consequences, right? So alcohol, people having a drink, you know, we've talked about alcohol many times, and should you even be drinking in terms of your health? But, you know, having a drink every once in a while, probably not as big of a deal as people getting as drunk as possible on a regular basis, right? That is leading to negative consequences. Drinking so much, you're drinking and driving, right? This is this idea of substance use. Substance dependence, though, is you can think of it as like either a physical condition where your body and mind is now adapted to you using the substance. And so you can think about it, you can get physically dependent. Like it's mainly things like opioids, benzodiazepines, so like Xanax, Ativans, right? And alcohol. This is why I do prescribe Ativans and benzodiazepines, but I'm very strict in how they're prescribed and how they're followed and when you want to come off them, how we come off them, right? Because your body does get used to them. And so your body kind of gets tricked into thinking that you need this substance for daily functioning and your neurotransmitters modify that, right? So that's why you cannot stop cold turkey because you'll have withdrawal symptoms, right? So there has to be a way to try and come off it. But then there's the other thing, which is I think people discredit a lot and don't place as much focus on, which is psychological dependence, right? I have these cravings, incapacitating cravings, obsessive thoughts that you can only use the substance in order to get by in life. And the biggest example that I see these days is marijuana, for sure. Oh, I need this at nighttime to fall asleep. I need it every day. Oh, okay. And then, yeah, you know, my anxiety, I got to, you know, smoke five joints a day or whatever method you're consuming Mm -hmm. it, Mm -hmm. right? It's like, but do you need that? Like, why do you need that, right? Sure. And the psychological depends, I think, sometimes we forget about. So that's the differences between those two. Yeah, I have a friend, Alison Dore. I'll, I'll mention her name because she's very public about this. And she's a host on Sirius XM of a daily show there. And she talks about how frustrated she gets when people are like, you cannot get addicted to marijuana. You just can't. And she's like, I have been there. I could not operate without, I could not function. I had to go to rehab for this. There's other people I met in rehab who had the same thing. So I think that's a great fallacy. Right. So to get a physical dependence to marijuana, it doesn't really happen. Your body receptors don't Right. It's that doesn't occur in the same way as alcohol. Yeah, exactly. Right. So really, really good point. But to answer your question from before, it's pretty common. So just look at alcohol. 140,000 people die from excessive alcohol use in the US every year. And then another 106,000 die from drug overdoses. And overall, if you look at the globe, they say 5% of the population between ages 15 and 64 has used at least one illicit substance and 0.6% percent of them suffer from substance dependence, 0.6. So that's a lot of the world, right? And it's an issue in all countries, you know, developing countries, etc. It happens everywhere. 
So you're saying that you don't have a lot of experience with this, obviously, as a pediatric neurologist, right? But is it in general something difficult for doctors to identify, to treat? Because it's, it's one of those things, again, that not everybody's coming in willingly, not everybody's uh, yeah. going along, you know, I mean- how many doctors must have been laughed in their face when they said the Health Canada guidelines are now two drinks per week? I mean, yeah, you know, it's yeah. like... No, exactly. So that's a really good point. And one of the problems is patients don't necessarily seek treatment. So for example, some statistics say 60% of people with opioid use disorder in the US do not receive any treatment. And some people, the delay from onset of addiction to treatment is four years. Same can be seen for alcoholism in the U.S., where only 7.3% of adults age 18 and older with an alcohol use disorder had received any treatment in the previous year. So it's a problem. And physicians don't feel that well-trained. Some studies have said that only 20% or less of family doctors feel prepared to identify and treat alcohol use or illegal drug use in their patients. And... If you ask the patients, more than 50% of patients with substance use disorder said their primary care physician, like their family doctor, did nothing to address their abuse. No. So it's definitely, these are big issues that you're bringing up for sure. What if somebody drags their parent or their child in spouse and says, this person is a drug addict? Mm -hmm. What does a doctor do at that point? How do you screen for that? How do you confirm yeah. or deny something like that? So let's talk about that second aspect in, in a second. So let's say no one's dragging them in, right? And they're just coming in. Willing. Oh you know, yeah. That's probably yeah, the yeah. And, Or they're seeing you for something else, their ear infection or whatever. Are there questions you can ask that can just screen for this? And that's what they suggest doing. That's the first thing. And it's probably what's suggested for primary care physicians and even their physicians too. So for example, you could ask a single question. How many times in the past year have you used an illegal drug or used a prescription medicine for non-medical reasons? Right? but maybe that's it. You could also ask similar questions about alcoholism. So there are some screening tools that you can use for problematic use of alcohol. So maybe they'll, you won't do it in everybody, but you think, okay, patients have recent unexplained traumatic injuries, right? There is a certain talk show host who I probably shall remain nameless, who has a late night talk show that is very funny, who a Conan lot of people allege, no, not Conan O'Brien. David Letterman, Johnny not Carson. David Letterman. No. Keep going. Jimmy Fallon. Jimmy Kimmel. Oh, well, you have to, you have to go guy? slower. No, <laughs> you have to go slower so Jimmy I can- Jimmy Fallon, like... Jimmy Fallon. Okay, So great. a lot of people allege there's no proof that Jimmy Fallon has a substance abuse or Fallon. alcohol use disorder. Okay. And so that's why you'll see him sometimes with injuries. Like you remember a couple of years ago, his finger, he had like a cast on his hand. And so that's pretty well, you know, discussed in- you know, gossip magazines. And so recent traumatic injuries that are unexplained in people, people who are absent from work all the time, legal problems. We talked about narcissistic personality disorder, how that can be associated with it. Yeah. Not today, by the way, we didn't, but we did an episode. In a previous that. episode, yeah. yeah. Sleep disturbance or liver disease, right? Obviously, then you want to screen for these things. And then you want to be discreet about it. So you could just, you know, be like, how often did you ever drink containing alcohol in the past year? And then they can tell you an idea of how much they consumed. How many drinks containing alcohol did you have on a typical day when you were drinking in the past year? And then you can kind of rate that. And how often do you have six or more drinks on one occasion in the past year? And then... Also, is there like a common knowledge when somebody goes, oh, I had 15 drinks this week. The doctor goes, that's probably more like 25. Do yeah. They, you know, so is it, the, is it the old sex partner thing? How many people have you slept with? Only three. 
Okay, that's 13. You know what I mean? Do we do uh, our I own thought it might map? be the opposite for sex partners, but no, yeah, that's what I do. You, when I was learning about this in medical school, I don't ask these questions anymore. You insanely, you know, overestimate yeah. the amount that someone's doing. So I said, so a single day you have like a two, four, two, four beer is 24 in, in Canada, or you have like a, you know, and so the average person will be like, what are you talking about? Like, who would ever drink a two, four beer in a day? Whereas people who do have an alcohol abuse problem will be like, yeah, that's about right. Mm-hmm. You know, so you overestimate. So you're not, you you don't want them to regress to the mean, which might just be a few drinks a day and just say, okay, that's normal. So I'll agree with that. Right. So this is based on, um, informed suspicions that you might have. Is that that's right? right. That's, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, but sometimes like people just, it is reasonable to include this routinely sometimes. Like, because again, if I'm asking you a question about how much alcohol you drink and you're a non-drinker, you'd be like, I don't drink any. Like, that's okay. Like no one would be offended by that, right? No one's like, you know, <laughs> I don't think most people would be offended. They'd be like, they might think if you're asking them if they, if they drink a two, four beer a day, that like you don't know anything about drinking alcohol mm. because you're asking a ridiculous question, right? Yeah. If you drink like one beer a week or something like that. Sure, sure, sure. Week, right. So anyway, but to get back to your other question about how you do this, like how, so say you identify this, how do you get to find out what people want and how do you get them motivated to change, right? That's what kind of you're asking about because, again, someone's dragged in by their partner or their parents or their children. How do you do that? And so the idea is to use something called motivational interviewing principles. And, again, I don't do this a lot, but sometimes you do these – I call them tricks. It's probably not a good way to look at it. But it's a way to get at people. So, you know, I'll use an example of how I use it in pediatric neurology. So a patient's not taking their medicine regularly. A teenager's not taking it. They're sleeping in. They're not doing it. Okay. And then you're having seizures. I'm like, so what are some of the difficulties that you're experiencing because you're having the seizures? And then hopefully they'll say, well, I have a seizure at school. It was, you know, kind of embarrassing that happened. Okay. What else? What are you interested in doing? You're turning 16 next year. Well, I want to get my driver's license. Okay. You know, you can't get your driver's license if you're having seizures. So what's a way that, you know, and so you're getting them to be motivated to change their health behaviors because of what you're asking. I don't know. Maybe I'll take my medicine. You get that? <laughs> Just yeah, thinking about and then, a and then, and then, you know, are there ways that you could remember to take your medicine? You know, I can you think of ways that you would, you know, oh, oh, I don't know. I just hate my parents nag me. Well, do you have a phone? Do you have, yeah, which the answer is 100% yes to any teenager in existence in North America. So you say yes. Okay, you have a phone. Okay, so maybe put reminders on your phone, right? So this is a way. So that's the way I would do it in neurology. Again, it's not rocket science, right? It is just kind of like a practical approach. So in other words, if you're telling someone you need to stop cocaine because it's damaging your heart, and then the patient will be like, well, yeah, but I don't think it's cocaine. My friends all use cocaine. Their hearts are fine. So another way to ask them is, you know, how does it feel when you hear the cocaine could be causing your chest pain and your recent emissions to the emergency room? Well, I don't think that that has anything to do with it, but maybe you have a point there, right? Or you're addicted to pills. You need to stop doing these pills. You're going to have it, want to have a baby. It's going to damage the baby. You're like, yeah, okay, I'll try. And then, but another way to ask is, you know, is there anything about your use of pain pills you're concerned about for now or the future? Well, do you want to have children in the future? Okay, so then you can do that. So there's ways to do it. So that's kind of what you can do as a physician who say a physician is not, you know, has extra training in addiction medicine, right? This is just at the basic level. You know, obviously they recommend 
people in general to abstain completely from it, right? That's what we often want, but sometimes that may not be possible. Or if you have substance dependence, you know, you need to get involved in a more intensive kind of treatment because your body's dependent on it. And sometimes we just do what's called harm reduction, right? And we've talked about this before when we've talked about opioids, when we talked about, we interviewed Sydney McElroy, who is very involved in her community with harm reduction. So this is the type of thing we talk about, like safe injection sites, allowing clean needles, right? So we know they're going to be doing this, but can we reduce the harms of the substance use? Or, you know, preventing drinking and driving. You can't prevent people from drinking maybe, but maybe you could prevent them from drinking and driving so they don't injure other people. When it is established that somebody has a problem, is it, you know, well, you have to go to AA meetings or where else do you refer them as a doctor? Not you, I mean, but... Or yeah, yeah. So for sure, there's different ones and it depends on the situation and what drugs they're on. Again, this is stuff that I don't really get that involved with, but there are mutual help meetings, right? So Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous and... Anybody at any stage could start attending those. Now, if you are a person with substance dependence, then you might need to do a medically supervised withdrawal. So that can be outpatient treatment, inpatient treatment, and you need to kind of get people off the medicine or substance that they're using, but do it in a safe way to kind of combat the risks of coming off it. So that might be you're managed by a specialist in addiction medicine. You could also do outpatient treatments. So again, that just depends on what substance you happen to be addicted to. But we've seen that. So I know Ali and I watched Dope Sick, which is this show about opioid addiction. And some people go in as an outpatient. So they're at home and they'll go in and they'll get their naloxone, right? They'll get the medicine that they're taking to try and slowly take them off. Right. Naloxone or naltrexone to try and get them slowly off the opioid, right? So that could be an outpatient treatment. And then sometimes people need a residential treatment, right? So that's what Matthew Perry was talking about, going to Switzerland and, and all these times he's been, he was in this treatment. So that's where you can do all of these things together, but you need 24-hour care. You need this safe living environment. You need to look at all aspects of them, their mental health, et cetera. So that might be required as well. So these are the different options. And again, it depends on what's going on with the individual patient, what's available to you in your area. And again, these specialists in addiction medicine can kind of point people in the right direction of which might be more useful for them. All right. Well, that is our discussion about addiction and about Matthew Perry. I do want to tell people that if this is something of interest to you, this subject matter, we have done episodes in a similar vein Chris Farley, John Mullaney, people who have mm -hmm. struggled with their own addictions. And I think we should probably at some point, like I said, I'm not an expert in it, but we should probably get someone, if we want to delve more in depth into addiction and addiction medicine, we'll get someone on perhaps sometime in the future to talk specifically about addiction medicine and some of these more details that we kind of superficially covered today. I think that's absolutely valuable. I mean, every city in Canada, and it's not major cities anymore. I was in Belleville, Ontario on the weekend, and I was doing an event at a library and the library, you know, is... The staff needs to be equipped to handle people ODing, a lot of people dying over you know, fentanyl primarily, but this just every city seems to have a huge drug oh, yeah. problem. In this one country. of my residents like was driving to one of our events we were having and then had to stop and they were late because they had to help someone get 
naloxone administered, you know? And yeah. a lot of people will carry it now. Like it's the thought is that you need to have this in your first aid kit in your car, just like you'd have like bandages sure. and the, you know, ice packs. So yeah, it's not the last that we talk about this no, subject. For sure, for no. sure. And again, as you're saying, the, the fact that it's come up so many times with celebrities, with our interviews, like with Sidney Malcaroy, I think it, it's a very important issue to talk about in our society. So let us know what you guys thought about this episode. Any memories you have of Matthew Perry? Really, he was a great comedian and actor. You know, again, grew up in Ottawa, my hometown. So I feel a lot of sadness with his death. But again, as Ali mentioned, we also want to celebrate his life. Let us know, Dr. V Comedian at gmail.com, Dr. V Comedian on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We are everywhere. And before we go, remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only, but they're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. Bye.